Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And Tracy, before we get to the show today, we have to talk, we have a little business to talk about an upcoming live show. Very exciting. We uh, were lucky enough to be invited to participate in Great Conversations at Gettysburg, which is a series of programs that they have there that draw on the themes of Gettysburg. And that's going to take place on June 29th, 2019 at the Rupp House History Center. And it's free. You can just go see us chat. There is cool programming going on all day long that day. We are going to have our live podcast, which is called Fearless, Feisty, and Unflagging, The Women of Gettysburg at 4 p.m. But if you're up for a a day of interesting history, there is a, a lot of other stuff to check out that day. So come and see us. Yeah. And if you want more detail about that, you can come to our website and up at the top of the page, at mistinhistory.com is a link that says live shows, or you can just go to mistinhistory.com slash shows, and it's there too. Yeah, super handy. Uh, so now to the topic at hand, and I feel like I need to say that there was accidental good timing. I am not as good at planning ahead and looking at calendars and basing programming on it as Tracy is. Uh, I fly a little bit more by the seat of my pants, <laughs> but entirely by accident, I started researching this topic because I knew because of poor time management and me getting a little caught up with some other non-history class work over the past week that I was going to have to do some work over the weekend. And I thought, well, if I have to do some work on the weekend, I'm going to pick a topic I'm really into. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we're talking about donuts today. So, But then I realized about halfway through it that when we publish it is actually going to fall on National Donut Day, which is June 5th. Complete accidental good fortune. Yeah. Unless I just have internalized the concept of National Donut Day to such a degree that my subconscious was like, you should do the episode now. Right. So we're actually going to talk a little bit about how National Donut Day started a little later on. That was actually um, started in a a more official capacity than maybe some of the other food-based national days you may (laughs) hear about. Um, But first, we are going to talk about the early predecessors of donuts in history and kind of how donuts evolved over time. And then uh, the last segment of the show, which is the longest for this one, is a nutty little battle about donut nomenclature that played out over the course of several decades in the pages of the New York Times, primarily in their letters to the editor's section. So if you fancy a donut, now's a good time to get one because you're in for a lot of fried dough talk and you might be craving one by the end otherwise. Yeah, I I will say it does not surprise me at all that there was a debate about donut nomenclature that went on. For decades, because I feel like the internet has been talking about whether a hot dog is a sandwich for decades. Exactly the same idea. (laughs) So, we've talked about food histories on the podcast enough that it is not new knowledge for our regular listeners when we say that as far back as the Neolithic period, people were making doughs and cooking them on hot stones. We have discoveries along those lines that show up in our unearthed episodes pretty regularly. And that concept of a simple paste made of a ground grain flour mixed with a liquid and then fried up developed in some form or another in cultures all around the globe in humankind's early years. Instructions for cooking cake in boiling fat can be found in Egyptian tombs going back to the 15th century BCE. 
Fried dough coated with honey was given to winners in the early Olympic Games as prizes. Marcus Porcius Cato the Elder included recipes for a number of dough-based confections in his writing on agriculture, which he wrote in the 2nd century BCE. And that writing includes one recipe that specifies frying balls of cheesy dough in hot oil, and another that describes spiraling a thinned dough in oil to create these coiled pastries uh, that would then be coated with honey. The Chinese poem Summoning the Soul, written in the 3rd century BCE, also speaks of fried honey cakes. And the Arabic world has long loved and written down recipes for sweets that start with a fried dough base as well. There are fritters and similar delights mentioned all through the 1001 Nights folktales. Evidence of a 1500 BCE fossilized acorn cake was discovered in Oklahoma in the 1920s. And what was unique about that discovery was that it was a round cake with a hole in the center. And the archaeologist who made that find, Etienne Renaud, believed that the hole was likely there so that the cakes could be stored in suspension as a way to keep animals from eating them. But as that discovery became public news and media picked it up, the popular opinion became that Renault had clearly discovered an early donut. <laughs> so it's a good time to talk about what a donut is by definition, and that is a harder question than you may imagine. The most common response is usually something along the lines of a deep-fried dough ball. And that is one way to classify it, but there have also been waffle iron-style donut makers and donut pans so that home donut makers can pop them in the oven. Those are really more like cakes that are shaped like donuts than what most folks would consider a true donut. But then there are also cake donuts, which use baking powder rather than yeast as their leavening agent. And while the donut in its circular shape with a hole in the middle is a very U.S.-centric treat, there have been, as we said, fried dough sweets all over the world for centuries. So, for example, in India, jalebi are a common treat. They're made by swirling batter in hot oil, and then they are soaked in warm syrup for several minutes. And desserts very similar to jalebi can be found throughout the Middle East and in some parts of Africa as well, and their lineage goes all the way back to the Middle Ages. Fritters of various kinds have been part of the sweets of Europe going back hundreds of years as well. Many of these are based on what's called a shoe paste, and that's a simple dough made with flour, water, sometimes egg, and possibly butter. There's not a leavening agent involved. That's how beignets started out in France, but as they migrated to the southern United States, yeast entered the recipe, and they took on the more pillowy characteristics that they're known for today. Yeah, it would have been less puffy and airy the way they are now uh, in its original form. Another favorite fried dough, especially for Disney Park fans, is the churro. So churros are normally made also with a shoe paste dough, and while they're closely associated with Latin American culture, it's more likely that their roots are actually in China. So the Chinese version was savory. It was a salted fried dough that Portuguese merchants discovered while they were traveling in Asia. And then when those merchants got home, they tried to replicate the Chinese food, but they opted to sweeten it up. And then the churro, named after churra sheep, started to look more like what we know it today. Uh, and then that was picked up by the shepherds of Spain because that was a pretty easy food that they could make while they were out in the pastures for long periods of time. 
and with minimal ingredients that were easy to carry with them. So from Spain, the churro spread to South America, where the stuffed versions became standard in both savory and sweet iterations. I will go on record as saying, I love a savory churro like there's no tomorrow. Here in the U.S., donuts are abundant, and there is certainly a tradition of fried dough in Native American cultures. But the pastry that we normally call a donut in the whole local donut shop sense has its roots in the Netherlands, When Dutch colonists made their way to the New World, especially New Amsterdam, the capital of the new Netherland colony at the time, they brought with them a deep-fried sweet known as alikeks. This translates to oily cakes because of the way they were prepared. The U.S. mythology around donuts grew from there. So Elizabeth Gregory is kind of a prominent figure in the story of donuts in the U.S., particularly in New England. So her son, Hanson Gregory, was a ship captain. And Elizabeth took advantage of the spices that he often carried, particularly cinnamon and nutmeg, and combined them with dough and lemon rind to deep fry a delicious pastry that also allegedly kept scurvy at bay. And her story is also one of the sources that people use as the the advent of the word donut, as she put nuts in the center of the pastries as well, uh, usually walnuts or hazelnuts, according to lore. But Hansen always claimed that he was the one who really revolutionized the donut by poking a hole in the center. Late in his life, he told the press that he had just used a round tin to cut the hole, but even so, exactly why he did is a matter of greater debate. He might have done it to stretch the ingredients a little bit further because his mother was making these treats for the crew as well. That way they could all have them on voyages. Or he may have done it so he could hang his pastry on one of the spokes of the ship's wheel to keep it handy while he was working. That is the story I heard in my childhood. And I was always like, but that doesn't make sense because it's only going to stick there. when you turn the wheel. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> only going to stick there until you turn the wheel. And then if you take a bite out of it, it's not going to stay there anymore. Yeah, I guess if you're on very steady seas and you want to maybe stack some for like your <laughs> your, your uh, long time standing at the wheel, maybe. <laughs> but yeah, those you would have to take one off, stuff it in your mouth. Otherwise, then you're still standing there holding a sticky pastry. Um, Donuts became a commonly baked item in U.S. kitchens in the second half of the 19th century. But the initial surge in the donuts popularity in the U.S. is actually pretty closely tied to World War I. So during the war, the Salvation Army had women volunteers baking donuts in huge quantities to deliver to U.S. soldiers stationed in France, even delivering them directly to men on the front lines. So these young women that were carrying donuts out to soldiers were nicknamed dough girls or dough lassies, And the combination of young women and baked goods really did help morale, and it left a lasting impression on the soldiers. So when the war ended, the men who came back sought donuts in their own neighborhood. Coming up, we will talk about how donuts went from this whole baked good to a whole industry. But before we do that, we will take a quick break and hear from one of the sponsors that keeps us going. As demand for bakery-made donuts grew, one enterprising man, Adolf Levitt, changed everything. And Levitt's story doesn't exactly start out a massive success. He was a Russian-born immigrant who moved with his parents to the U.S. in 1883 at the age of eight. And he didn't get much formal schooling because his family was poor and he had to start working when he was 10 to help keep things afloat. He taught himself as much as he could by reading books on his own. 
And as a young man, he was pretty ambitious. He was really hardworking. He opened up a series of businesses and worked in retail for a long time, but none of those efforts were really successful. When he was 37, Levitt moved from Milwaukee to New York and started a bakery there. He started making donuts to accommodate this post-war rise in their popularity, but he got some complaints from the adjacent businesses about the fumes from the deep fryer. He brainstormed a machine that could do the job without making so many fumes and eventually met an engineer on the train, got to talking, and explained the idea to him. This machine was comprehensive in its design because it mixed the dough, formed it into ringlets, dropped them into oil, flipped them, and then pulled them out of the oil and onto a conveyor belt. Finally, they landed in a basket to be served. Yeah, it's also fun to note that there's no point where the donut gets the hole punched in it. It's actually formed as a ring. That's something people maybe don't always know. Uh, It took a dozen tries at making this machine before it worked properly. But once it did in 1921, it was an instant hit. Levitt did not hide his donut maker in the back. He displayed it in the window. And it drew onlookers who also came in to buy donuts. And Adolf Levitt finally found success. He became known as the Donut King, and his bakery, the Mayflower Coffee Shop, was replicated throughout the country. And under his company, the Donut Corporation of America, his donut machines, as well as donut mixes to use in them, were being shipped all over the world. Donut machines were on display at the 1934 Chicago World's Fair, and they were lauded as an emblem of the century. They were inexpensive enough that most people could afford one, and they were made via automation, so they seemed really futuristic. Yeah, this is, you know, depression times, so it was pretty exciting that you could get a really yummy treat for a few cents that made you feel like you were part of the country's progress into future technologies. Uh, And around this same time, a man named Joe Lebeau, who was a French chef from New Orleans, sold his donut recipe, which was just handwritten out on a piece of paper, and the name Krispy Kreme that he used for it to a man named Ishmael Armstrong in Paducah, Kentucky. And Armstrong made donuts up based on this recipe in batches, and he had his nephew sell those donuts door-to-door. But after mediocre sales in Paducah, Armstrong moved to Nashville to open a donut shop there. But soon he sold that business to his brother, and he went back to Kentucky. In 1937, his nephew, Vernon Rudolph, made donuts with LeBeau's recipe and sold them in Winston-Salem, North Carolina with friends in a grassroots effort to try to expand the company business. Vernon and his friends had been traveling for a bit trying to find the right spot, and they were so broke that when they started up in North Carolina, they had to borrow the ingredients for their first batches of donuts. They sold mostly to grocers, but the scent of baked, freshly glazed donuts lured people to the bakery space that they rented, so he started selling directly to the customers. Within a decade, he had expanded to have donut shops in seven states and still totally attract people by the fact that (laughs) there is a Hot Donuts Now sign informing you that there are hot donuts now. Yes. Even the Dalai Lama eats Krispy Kremes. (laughs) The closest ones to me are in New York City at, I think, Union Station. But they're not, like, there's not a donut fryer there. They're shipped in from somewhere, which is not really the same. No. Um, So when we were out on the West Coast for our tour last year, I was taking a car from the hotel that I had stayed in to the ferry terminal, and we passed a Krispy Kreme with the Hot Donuts Now sign on. (laughs) And I was almost like, stop right here then I was afraid I would miss my ferry. And then I missed my ferry anyway, and I knew I had made and the wrong decision. And you had decision. no donuts. Yep, I had yeah. no donut. It's no good. 
1938, National Donut Day was born. And that was a fundraising initiative that was launched by the Salvation Army to hearken back to the World War I efforts of the women volunteers who brought donuts to soldiers and also to remember their work. And the tradition of delivering donuts to men in combat continued in World War II. Both the Salvation Army and the Red Cross ran wartime donut morale programs. In 1944, Life magazine ran a story on the donut morale effort with the tagline, Donuts Will Win the War. While it undoubtedly helped some soldiers maintain a connection to home during tough times, it also was excellent for the donuts' image around the world and back home as this pastry came to be associated with the war effort, volunteerism, and cheer. They also talked about them on the Great British Bake Off. These were the donut dollies. <laughs> yes. After they were on that show, people asked us to do a podcast about them. Krispy Kreme's Vernon Rudolph shipped out to fight in the war. When he came home, he went right back to making donuts. He developed a new donut machine that came to be known as the Ring King, and he also made a Ring King Jr. that could be used in smaller retail spaces. The Ring King Jr. could turn out about 60 dozen donuts an hour, and modern donut machines can make 800 dozen donuts an hour. The Smithsonian has a Ring King Jr. in the National Museum of American History. Yeah, I think it is not on display. It's part of the the archives that are not out for visitors, but it's there. Uh, and there's a page about it on their website, which is going to be in our show notes. And as Rudolph was perfecting his machine to make all those dozens of donuts, another major player in the donut game opened its first shop. Bill Rosenberg's Dunkin' Donuts debuted in Quincy, Massachusetts in 1950. And five years later, it started franchising and grew into the behemoth it is today. Uh, Dunkin' has stores in 46 countries worldwide, uh, and there are more than 12,000 different locations. Yeah, well, I have to go to New York City to get a shipped-in Krispy Kreme donut. If I want a donut from Dunkin', I'm always, like, 400 feet from one. <laughs> I, I uh, The first time that my husband spent any substantial time in Manhattan, he was like, are people really afraid that they might have to walk a block without a donut? <laughs> there really is a Dunkin' on almost every other block, which is pretty funny. So as we alluded to earlier, there's a whole other story about donuts and drama in the United States, and we will jump into that right after we pause for a quick sponsor break. So while I was researching this episode, I started looking at old digitized stories from the New York Times, which is one of my favorite things, and I stumbled across this interesting pattern. Starting in 1913, there were full-on debates happening in the letter section about whether crullers could be considered donuts and which pastry was superior. And I honestly had no idea this was so hotly debated. As Tracy mentioned earlier, yes, people will argue about anything forever, but I just did not know the level of fervor with which the crullers versus donuts situation had happened. Um... While I never managed to find the original article which the Times published that kicked off a lot of this debate, I did find one dated December 1st, 1913. It was a letter from William L. Henry. And that letter to the editor is brief, and it reads, quote, One way of stating the question is, is a donut ever a cruller? In other words, I defy you to find any agreement of authorities so that one may know whether these two terms define the shape or the materials out of which both delicacies are made. Perhaps your correspondence will rush to the defense of their own favorite nomenclature and some standard usage may be discovered. To put my question another way, does the whole itself determine the baptismal name? 
Two days later, a letter from reader Casey put forth the following opinion, quote, an old New England housewife in the vintage of 48 and a descendant of the Mayflower feels able to speak authoritatively on the donut crullers question. The donut is born of leisure and forethought, the child of silence and slow time, being raised with yeast, set in sponge overnight behind the kitchen stove, kneaded in the morning, and left to rise again before being fried. The cruller is a creature of impulse, quickly stirred together, raised with baking powder or its equivalent, and fried upon the spur of the moment. The donut is a nobler nutriment and was the fare of the pilgrims, but the swift and humble cruller had his place in this hurrying, progressive time. Uh, by the way, I, I did not find any evidence that pilgrims ate donuts. <laughs> no, and, <laughs> I and don't. I'm, I don't want a dog, Miss KC, with her knowledge, but <laughs> I don't I, think the pilgrims had donuts. I I am just thinking about how my mother made donuts, which was to buy a can, like a tube of biscuits from the refrigerator section, right? Shape it into a donut shape and deep fry it in the fry daddy fryer that we had in the kitchen. That sounds delicious. It was. Put powdered sugar on it. Put powdered sugar on everything. I don't I don't know why that would even be a question. Um, this letter was quickly followed up by reader J.L.A. Fowler, who wrote, quote, Cruller and Donut are of the same family and have names to distinguish them only. Donut is a common name, but the word cruller is a dignified, refined, and a appropriate name. A donut is a ball of dough, while a cruller is the same dough, rolled thin, cut in strips with a slit cut lengthwise in the center, with one end turned through the slit, producing the familiar hole. The debate seemed to die down for a bit, and then there was a lengthy letter from 1933 titled Donut Holes in the Cruller. Reader V.H. Penn responded to a suggestion that the size of the donut holes needs to be regulated. Penn's letter is full of punnery and wordplay, and it doesn't seem especially serious, but its content outlines the fact that we should just ditch donuts altogether and switch to the far superior cruller, which will solve the problem automatically. Penn writes, quote, the cruller form of the pastry is really superior to the donut in many ways. In taste, the difference is nil, though crullers usually have a sugar coating that few donuts possess. In design, however, the donut's form and function are traceable only to the prosaic life preserver, while the cruller, deriving its motif from the cute, twisted columns of Spanish architecture, is authentic and artistic. Penn says the best thing about crullers is how they how good they are for dunking. I love that crullers are described as authentic and artistic. <laughs> I absolutely love that. Uh, so that brings us to dunking, which we got to talk about for a minute. Because dunking one's donut in coffee or tea or cocoa or milk or whatever tickles your fancy began, according to legend, by accident. Popular actress Mae Murray accidentally dropped her donut into her coffee at a New York restaurant. Which restaurant is a matter of debate. Uh, and after fishing that pastry out, she took a bite and proclaimed it delightful. And as she was one of the most popular actresses of the 1920s, this started a craze as everyone started dunking their donuts to emulate the starlet. So, talking about ramping up the donut cruller debate of the early, the early 20th century, we also need to talk about the National Dunking Association. This was an organization started in the 1930s by none other than Adolf Levitt's Donut Corporation of America, and it was a cute way to promote donuts and give customers a fun club to belong to. 
The group didn't seem to take itself especially seriously. It always named a comedian as its president. Red Skelton, Jimmy Durante, and Johnny Carson all served as head of the organization at various times. The back of the membership card for the National Dunking Association read, Dunk a Donut and Be Merry, and it included the text of what it called the Optimist's Creed, which read, As you ramble on through life, brother, whatever be your goal, keep your eye upon the donut and not upon the whole. There were also guidelines on the card for dunking, which read, quote, the National Dunking Association respectfully requests all members to observe the official dunking rules. Splashing is taboo. Any member caught getting his fingers wet will be subject to suspension. With that, we wish you happy dunking. And when you dunk, be sure you dunk donuts identified with the official seal of tested quality for delightfully delicious and winningly wholesome donuts enjoyed by millions of people. (laughs) But those guidelines were just an abbreviation of the official club dunking guide. So the longer form guide cautions amateurs about not getting too cocky because watching a professional dunker can make it look easy. Uh, And then it outlines an eight-step guide to perfect dunking, which included, and this is, again, abbreviated, one, tuck a napkin under your chin, two, break your donut in half, three, pick up the donut carefully and keep the fingers that are not holding the donut up and out of the way, four, quote, swish the donut rhythmically in the beverage with a free and easy movement of the entire arm, five, keep the donut immersed for exactly two point five seconds. Six, remove the donut from the liquid and let any excess liquid drip back into your cup. Seven, quote, swerve the donut in a graceful curve toward your mouth and close your teeth tenderly over the dunked portion. And eight, repeat the above process until all the donuts on the table are simply fond memories. There are also some admonishments about being careful not to splash around, never trying to duck a whole donut, and never getting your fingers wet. That's all pretty hardcore about not making a mess for an activity that's alleged to have started when a starlet dropped a donut into her cup by accident. But still, it's written in this very cavalier, jaunty style that has a little edge of wit. As dunking continued to be popular, the debate over donut versus cruller revived periodically. In May 1936, the New York Times ran a story about Major Helen Perviance, who was one of the women who had supplied donuts to soldiers in France during the First World War. And the subheader on that article read, Major Perviance warns mere cruller won't do. (laughs) But in the actual article, the only distinction that she really makes is that donuts have holes and crullers do not. And she made very clear in her interview with the newspaper that the soldiers preferred donuts. In 1941, the AP ran an article about the National Dunking Association. They had written to the Federal Security Administrator, Paul V. McNutt, to please step in and have the Food and Drug Administration make an authoritative ruling on the matter. McNutt was convinced that a dictionary definition could be used to settle the matter without the U.S. government getting involved. There was an interesting outcome to this request, The National Dunkers Association asked McNutt to become an honorary member, and he accepted. (laughs) But that meant that there was still debate because they had not gotten their government ruling. So on October 9th of 1941, the Times ran a letter written by Burt Nevins, vice president of the National Dunking Association. And as an aside... Nevins's name comes up a lot, and he was actually a publicist that was hired to get donuts in the public eye, and he was clearly really good at that job. In his letter to the editor, Nevins tries to present, quote, the dunkers side of the situation. He first states that the association is a, quote, bona fide organization, which is non-commercial and non-political. At that point, the group had more than a million members. 
He went on to say, quote, our reason for seeking assistance from Administrator McNutt is that donuts are called crullers in many sections of the country, especially throughout Pennsylvania. Bylaws of our organization call for the dunking of donuts and not crullers or any other outlaw cakes. And naturally, many of our members have complained that they have had difficulty in practicing their dunking properly. I will forever look at a cruller and call it an outlaw cake going forward. <laughs> uh, he goes on to say that the hole in the donut is the key and that, quote, crullers, coffee cake, ladyfingers, and other items are conducive to sloppy technique and do not enable one to get the real enjoyment out of the art of dunking. Nevins concludes by saying that the matter will be brought up at the annual convention a few weeks later and that they will then petition all dictionary publishers to help. And he ends with the quote, if that fails, we shall probably seek government aid. (laughs) In December 1943, the Times ran yet another donut or cruller article. This one discussed the many letters they had received on the matter and also included a quote from Bert Nevins, who was credited as the director of the National Dunking Association. Yeah, he was actually the vice president. I'm not sure why they listed him as director, but there you go. Uh, Nevins gave the Times the following quote on the matter. Quote, the question of the difference between the donut and the cruller came up at our annual convention three years ago and was settled for all time. At least we thought so. They had, in the end, gone with shape. The cruller was an elongated, twisted piece of dough. The donut was a round cake with a hole in the middle, per their definition. In that same article, Ted Robinson of the Cleveland Plain Dealer discussed that what he did and didn't believe constituted a donut based on all the evidence, and then it said, quote, but usage is the law of language and will finally win over rule and precedent and correctness. Crullers and fried cakes are called donuts by 99% of the population, so it is silly to hold out for purism. I am content to call them all donuts. All, that is, except those monstrosities with jelly inside them. Later that month, Kenneth Wiggins Porter wrote the Times on the matter. And first, he mentioned that he had long been keeping up with this debate that played out in the paper over what is and isn't a donut. And then Porter shared his unique experience of what he and his family often made when he was growing up in Kansas and how he did not grow up with the same nomenclature for the fried dough pastries that the bakers of Manhattan seemed to. He was startled when he discovered that what they were calling crullers were an item that his family had only ever called tangle britches. (laughs) And he closed with a question about whether anyone else had ever heard of such an alternate name or if maybe it was just his family. I never found any evidence that anyone wrote back about tangle britches. In any case, there does not seem to have been any official ruling on what is or isn't a donut. The National Dunkers Association disbanded at some point, but it's a little unclear when that happened, and there are certainly some regional differences in what people call various baked goods and various other things and various other words. And I'm like, everyone just chill out. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that uh, will go on and on and on forever. Uh, I will tell a slightly embarrassing story of how it took me probably 12 years of marriage before I figured out what Brian meant when he said a chocolate donut was like a a regular donut with chocolate icing and not a chocolate cake donut. (laughs) And it came to be this thing where, like, our friends, we would walk into a donut shop and they would all get tense because they knew I would always get Brian the wrong donut and mess it up. (laughs) 
It's fine. We've figured it out now. Um, but for the record, in more modern discussion of the matter, crullers, it is pointed out, can actually exist in two different forms. One is a hand-twisted cake donut. But there are also crullers made with shoe paste, like we mentioned earlier in the episode. Those are unleavened. And in the book Donut, A Global History, which was one of my sources for this, author Heather Delancey-Hunwick is very clear that the shoe paste crullers do not count as donuts, but the twisted cake ones do. Ah, oh, donuttery. Mm-hmm. Do you have some listener mail? <laughs> I do. Uh, this is from our listener, Megan, or perhaps she pronounces it Megan. Either way, I'm not sure. Uh, she writes, Dear Tracy and Holly, thank you so much for the wonderful show you produce. My best friend introduced me to the concept of podcasts when I was complaining about how boring driving to all my residency interviews in my fourth year of medical school was. Since then, nearly two years ago, you guys have kept me company during road trips, moves, chores, and my constant knitting projects. Even on people and subjects I've heard about before, like Dr. Apgar, I always learn something new. Of course, I'd lo- I love to share these cool tidbits I learned from you to the point where one of my coworkers playfully bellowed at me, how do you know stuff about everything? Of course I don't, but I do love constantly learning more, so keep up the good work. Um, one, I'm always uh, sort of in awe by people who get through medical school and go on to, to have careers in medicine, so kudos, Megan. Uh, and thank you for the lovely postcard, which is a... Um, a really beautiful piece of uh, Japanese art. We appreciate it. Um, It is from the Honolulu Museum of Art from the Edo period. Uh, And it's absolutely beautiful. So thank you, thank you for that. If you would like to write to us, you can do so at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. You can also find us everywhere on social media as Missed in History. And mistinhistory.com is also our website address where you can find every single episode of the show that has ever existed. Uh, You might want to subscribe to the show. That would be grand. And you can do that on the iHeartRadio app, at Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. (laughs) 